Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and we have a special guest here today. Alicja Bohuska is a China analyst in Map Influence in Poland and she also works as a China analyst at the Asia Research Center World Studies University in Warsaw. Uh, welcome Alicja to the, to the podcast. Thank you for, for being here. Hi Leszek, thank you very much for the invitation. So I think you can guess what our subject will be today. Uh, we're speaking on the 16th of March, and this is already more than 20 days of the uh, Russia invasion to Ukraine. And uh, what is a very hot topic, and I think will be for the time to come, is how China might wait on the on the war, and what would be the China engagement, if any, in the conflict. So, uh, Alicia, could you please start with? Uh, reflecting on the Russian, on the Russian uh, approaching China for for support in this war, uh, do you think that China will help Russia in war in Ukraine, and if how? Um, that's a great question, Leszek. But there is a lot of things to unpack here. So first of all, um, it depends on the definition of help or aid. We've been hearing um, the news about uh, Russia uh, allegedly asking China for military and economic aid uh, for the Ukraine war uh, in the last couple of days. Um, and this does not necessarily translate into China's willingness to actually positively respond to such a request. And that's because uh, China's stance on this war is very vague at the moment, although overall it's very visible that uh, Beijing is siding with Moscow rather than with the rest of the, the world. So uh, it has a couple of implications. So first of all, the way China is speaking about the war, actually it's not using the, the, the very notion of war to speak about this conflict. It's um, using Russian terminology. So it's uh, speaking about uh, the special security operation in Ukraine or about the Ukraine tensions. So that's already one level where it's quite visible that uh, it's not trying to kind of discursively uh, support the West, but instead it's opting for the for the Russian interpretation of the events. But also, uh, if you consider um, the larger scheme of things and the way how Chinese foreign policy operates, it's also obvious that China cannot make any radical statements about this war because it still operates within uh, quite a strict framework of its foreign policy, meaning that Already in the 1950s, uh, still under Mao, China uh, decided to um, choose uh, the so-called five uh, rules of peaceful coexistence, meaning that it has a set of uh, narratives that it follows. For example, um, there's the rule of non-interference into uh, internal affairs of uh, third countries. And this does not mean that China is not interfering, obviously, but instead it means that it cannot be radical in terms of its you know, uh, strategic communication. Right. But does it mean that in this case, the China sees the conflict as, as more as a threat to its global interest, or does it see it as an opportunity to get more influence over Russia? Do you think that in this case, this kind of false neutrality is not going to backfire. So Chinese will have to 
take the stance to avoid sanctions or well support its ally Russia in, in in Ukraine. Do you think that this observing from from above would work in the in the long term in Chinese case? It really depends on how the situation evolves. So here I think that initially um, in early February, uh, when the Xi Putin meeting took place, because there was a meeting that uh, happened in Beijing on the day of the opening of the Winter Olympic Games, when uh, Putin and Xi met and um, they uh, published a document which now seems like kind of a um, a very important one when it comes to the, 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 the future trajectory of this relation. So it was a document about uh, a joint statement on the future of international relations, meaning that both Moscow and uh, Beijing declared that they want to cooperate and work uh, for a future international order, which uh, would be uh, more secure for authoritarian states like China and Russia. And also there was a lot of speculations whether during that meeting uh, Putin and Xi talked about uh, Moscow's plan to invade Ukraine, which uh, was also somehow backed by a meeting which happened a day before the Xi-Putin meeting. And it was um, a summit between the ministers of foreign affairs of Russia and China, in which they officially claimed that they coordinated their policies on Ukraine. We don't know what it actually means, but we can speculate that maybe uh, Russia um, informed Beijing about its plans, but probably it presented China with this best case scenario, meaning that uh, Russia was thinking that it would win the conflict through a blitzkrieg-like invasion with little resistance from the Ukrainian society. And this might have been the scenario which could have been communicated to see. But, uh, you know, this is only an informed guess and we don't know, uh, we don't have any evidence um, uh, of that. Um, but this might have been the scenario that China could have consciously agreed to because it was an easy scenario. This would not uh, really change the international balance of power uh, so badly that it could negatively affect China. It would basically be a small, uh, small scale, um, short uh, invasion, which would translate into Russia's growing sphere of influence in, in Eastern Europe, but not necessarily into China's um, direct uh, gains or losses. But did not, this did not materialize, um, and now we're in this protracted crisis, and China is obviously very aware of the fact that it might, in the end, end up on the wrong side of history. Because as we're seeing now, uh, we have all this evidence about the atrocities um, committed by the Russian army, um, and China, because of, of this tacit, uh, tacit help for, for Russia, uh, is seen increasingly as an actor enabling this war. So I would like to now ask you about an interesting piece that that appeared recently and made some waves in the international community. This is the article, uh, the possible outcomes of the Russo-Ukrainian war and Chinese choice by Hu Wei, who is the vice chairman of public policy research center of the Council's office of the State Council. So quite an official position and. Well, I think it would be great if you can tell us the, the main points of this article, but in general, this is a strong advice against Chinese helping Russia in the conflict that would integrate West. And as the author put it, the Iron Curtain would fall again, not only from the Baltic Sea to Black Sea, but also to the final confrontation between the Western dominated camp and its competitors. So could you could you tell us more about the, the article, but also how 
if at all it reflects the, the Chinese view on the war. I think this article became inaccessible in China, so it's, it's rather a suggestion that this is not the official party or even semi-official party statement. So, yeah, can you, how do you read it? How do you read this? Sure. So, uh, first of all, um, as you said, um, the arguments uh, made by Huey in his piece um, was very compelling. And also, interestingly, it was um, somehow he was making a moral statement, uh, but it was also disguised in this language of power politics and uh, realism, which was very interesting. Um, and overall, uh, yeah, the main argument was that uh, China should be more flexible in its attitude towards Ukraine because Beijing's tacit permission to Russia's war might actually backfire and push China into a very severe international crisis with a lot of unintended uh, consequences. Um, and Huawei was also kind of leaning towards this opinion that Russia will lose this war. Yet China should also try to prevent further escalation and avoid being dragged into this conflict by Putin. But despite the fact that uh, all these arguments uh, sound very attractive, especially to Western um, readers from uh, liberal democracies, um, we have to still remember um, the broader context in which it was published. Uh, so first of all, Huawei, although he, uh, as you said, is the vice chairman of the public policy research center of the council's office of the state council, he is not um, a decision maker. So he's basically a public intellectual uh, with uh, quite a good reputation within the party state, but he's not in a position of power within the, the party state. And here, maybe I will very briefly talk about what I mean by the party state, because this might be a term that many of our listeners are not familiar with, but it's quite crucial. So basically, the way how China under CCP operates is not that it has, you know, um, a separation of powers between the party and the state institutions, but instead, um, state institutions are somehow mirroring um, the party uh, structure. So in every uh, kind of a formal setting in China, the party is more powerful and more dominant over any kind of uh, state organization. So in this context, Huawei is basically a public intellectual. And although he might um, be well established and quite high up in this hierarchy, his views do not reflect the views of the central government or uh, the top leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. And here, uh, when it comes to my assessment of, of the meaning of this article, um, I would uh, like to relate to what uh, James Palmer, uh, the deputy editor of the Foreign Policy magazine, um, wrote about it on Twitter, which I think is a very good assessment with which I agree. His assessment is basically that what Huawei wrote is an accurate analysis of what uh, China should do, but it is uh, by no means an indicator of what China will do. So in other words, Huawei's position uh, does not reflect the central government's uh, positions. And maybe there are some individuals within the party state who, are, uh, who share similar views with Huawei. But structurally speaking, these views have no power over, over the actual decision-making processes under Xi Jinping. Uh, and also, as you've mentioned, uh, what happened with this publication is the ultimate proof of you know, how 
um, inconsequential this piece is, because the article was not only censored in Chinese social media, but also the website of the outlet, which initially had published the piece, uh, the US-China Perception Monitor, which is um, a US-based online publication, a very niche publication that most Chinese netizens probably uh, do not know about. Um, this website got completely banned and is now inaccessible from mainland China. So, you know, here we also get to the issue of, of Chinese internet censorship and its systemic nature. So the way it works is that it creates uh, even more powerful echo chambers compared to the ones we uh, are accustomed with uh, from non-Chinese internet. So this does not mean that there are no opposing voices within a Chinese society, but uh, what we see is a what I call a, a curated vision of social attitudes. So in this case, we see a lot of Russian content and content similar to what Huawei uh, has written uh, basically disappears uh, from the Chinese uh, internet. So I, yeah, I, I had the problem with this analysis because it's almost seen like uh, written by the by the Western Western experts, and and it was it was almost hard for me to believe. I checked uh, what is this. Uh, uh, affiliation that Huawei has, it, it seemed pretty official, right? So it's like, and like advisor to some part of Politburo, right? Is it? Is it the yes, right? but but that's what I said when it comes to the party mm. state. You have advisors who are not within the CCP, Chinese Communist Party structures, but as advisors, uh, oftentimes they uh, have this kind of, uh, they're like a smokescreen um, for kind of this democratic vision of China that actually the government listens to different voices and then uh, takes them into account uh, into the formal decision-making processes. And obviously, in some cases, uh, that's true. But I don't think that uh, in the current situation and given what happened to the article later on, this view, we basically should not uh, feel too optimistic about this view being the dominant view uh, of of the central government these days, I, I think that's very far away from from what's going on. By by your reading of of Chinese interests and how they see the interests, because I think this is most important. Do you think that this this part when he suggests that China should avoid playing both sides of the same boat and give up being neutral and choose the mainstream position in the world? Because in the end, uh, Russia failure would mean strengthening the West and isolation of China. Do you think that this kind of uh, perception could prevail in the current in, in the current uh, well, she close circle or the wider party circles? Or do you think that simply China confrontation with U.S. means that uh, they will in the end rather? in a maybe more uh, indirect way, but support Russia because they see American dominated world as the main challenge and the other, such as international stability, globalization, uh, developing economy and so on as actually as secondary problems. So do you think that actually this advice might might resonate well? I mean, even if it's, you know, independent advice, not, not a kind of party advice, do you think that that this is how Chinese should read their their interests, or it's you know it's uh, it's really how we would like them to to view the world. By in reality, it is completely different. I think it uh, depends a lot on how the conflict will evolve. So currently, we're in this middle ground scenario where Russia has become involved in a prolonged conflict, 
and China would probably like this conflict to de-escalate so that um, Moscow is not pushed to its limits. Because if Moscow is pushed to its limits, it might become even more unpredictable. And China does not want to end up in a situation where it is backing a uh, an unpredictable regime that can actually uh, you know, lead to uh, greater escalation and um, China becoming even more marginalized. Although, you know, the process of, of uh, somehow uh, these tensions between China and the US or China and the EU, these these developments have been uh, have been going on for, for the last couple of years, even before the pandemic. But currently, I think that what China would like uh, to see is that Russia would engage itself in a long-term competition with Western democracies, uh, while still uh, being able to continue Putin's rule inside the country. And this would be uh, positive for Beijing for at least two reasons. So first of all, because um, this might translate into the US uh, being less focused on the Indo-Pacific, as you said. Um, you know, China does not want to see uh, growing interference in what it perceives as um, its own uh, backyard. So uh, here I'm talking about the South China Sea, uh, the Taiwan Strait and the broader Indo-Pacific region. But also if Russia engages itself in this long term competition, uh, but without uh, provoking even more uh, internal destabilization within Russia, uh, this would also negatively affect the overall condition of Western democracies because it would force them to focus mostly on deterring the Russian threat in Moscow, in Moscow's growing European sphere of influence. But also this would mean that probably Europe would not be able to focus so much on creating this united front against growing China. But uh, last but not least, we have the worst case scenario in which Russia uh, fails in every aspect and some form of uh, regime change unfolds in Russia and the power is transferred to some kind of pro-Western forces. And obviously this at, at this stage, this is a very kind of sci-fi kind of a scenario. But um, I think that uh, if this would ever unfold, um, China would remain the only big global player in this scenario, you know, this worst case scenario, uh, China would be the only systemic competitor with Western democracies, and it would become probably uh, more and more alienated and also in danger of uh, what we might call a spillover uh, effect from Russia along their shared uh, border. So this would be um, definitely very problematic. And China does not want to see this kind of a scenario um, to take place uh, anytime soon. But still, in the very, very current situation, the thing that brings China and Russia together is their shared belief that Western democracies are still a threat to the regimes in Beijing and in Moscow. So both these countries share a vision of a future world order um, in which international rules and standards are set increasingly by by states like like China and Russia, um, which would in turn translate into their more powerful position, not only domestically, but also when it comes to, you know, multilateral institutions, uh, global forums, um, rule setting, and so on. But, you know, as, as I've also mentioned before, uh, China is still afraid, I think, and increasingly so, that it might actually end up on the wrong side of history 
and this uh, this news about Russia potentially asking for Chinese aid in, in terms of the conflict in Ukraine is an element, from my, my perspective, of um, increasing this pressure on China to actually realize what the consequences might be if uh, the global public opinion um, decides or realizes that China is actually an active enabler of this war and not only uh, an actor that is trying to somehow uh, side with Russia, yet uh, still sitting on the fence. It seems that China can, well, lose quite a lot in if actually their role is uh, openly exposed, as it might happen if they don't, well, deny or they don't declare they want support this war directly. And uh, I think it will be very hard to do it discreetly, to be honest. And the question is, of course, what in practice they can do, because it doesn't mean that they can deliver ready-to-made systems that Russia can can use. I don't think there is any agreement yet what was, and if there was really any any such a request from the Russian side, China is denying it, and I think it still remains to be seen what exactly Russia would like to, to, to receive. But on the other hand, it seems that China could lose really like strategically if Russia would uh, fail in this first scenario you mentioned, I, I would say uh, most unlikely scenario in the short term, but that would be perhaps the biggest threat uh, and real isolation. So I think they will try to be cautious as they were, uh, at least so far. But especially if this conflict escalates, I think this position would remain even more harder to, uh, to preserve. I would like to ask you about um, something that is directly connected with with uh, what actually the, the another war everyone was expecting actually perhaps even more than this war between uh, this Russia and, and Ukraine this invasion of Russia to Ukraine. So does this question of Ukrainian uh, of of this invasion to Ukraine resonates at all with uh, connection to to Taiwan question? Does it? No. Is it discussed in China right now, or is it any link between those two issues, or not at all? Um, sure, that's a very good question. I would just very quickly uh, refer to what you've just mentioned, um, basically the details, the alleged details of the kind of military aid um, China might provide to Russia, because the, the journalist from the Financial Times who broke the story actually um, also released some additional information. Um, obviously, this, this, this news was not verified or um, both China and the US officials said that they, they won't comment on that. And nevertheless, uh, according to that journalist from the Financial Times, the kind of military aid um, Russia requested uh, was um, quite broad. So it was not only conventional gear, um, but it was also about technical support or even things like very basic things like prepackaged military food kits, which are made in China. So that's not necessarily, you know, the most high tech uh, kind of aid that we might imagine, um, which also, if it's true, uh, it showcases how bad the, the situation of the Russian military is at the moment. But when it comes to the Taiwan question, um, that's an extremely important one, uh, because first of all, we tend to think about the Taiwan uh, issue as if Taiwan was just a pawn in this broader game between great powers. That's how, um, you know, both the media and some observers often uh, talk about it. 
you know, as if Taiwan had no agency and no decision-making powers on its own, no uh, civil society and, you know, no interests as such. And that's not the case. And obviously now both China and Taiwan are really watching closely um, what's going on in Ukraine, because first of all, uh, this is a test for uh, Western uh, democracies and for multilateral organizations when it comes to the reaction. And uh, I think that both China and Russia uh, at the very beginning of this invasion believed that, uh, you know, they, they believed their own propaganda about um, the West being here, quote unquote, uh, morally rotten and, uh, you know, unable to uh, show any kind of solidarity uh, in the face of such a threat, which, as we know now, after two weeks of, of after the invasion, uh, was not the case. And um, what Putin managed to, to realize in terms of um, uh, somehow speeding up this process of, of solidarity building is quite unprecedented. Um, so from this perspective, also for China, this is a great lesson about what might actually happen if uh, Beijing decides to um, step up its game uh, or in maybe not necessarily invade Taiwan uh, itself, but for example, uh, increase its destabilization tactics uh, across the Taiwan Strait. And uh, Taiwan itself is also very active when it comes to uh, supporting Ukraine with a lot of both uh, political symbolic signs of uh, support, but also um, sending uh, physical aid um, to the people uh, of Ukraine. So I guess that we still have to remember that it's not only about two superpowers, uh, China and the US, but also about Taiwan itself, which has its own agency and is still able to, um, to react to this kind of threats. And probably China is, um, I hope, aware that if any kind of war was to uh, break out across the Taiwan Straits, uh, China would actually end up with its own Ukraine, with Taiwanese people who have a very strong and increasingly anti-PRC uh, self-identity, and they ad identify um, the majority of them uh, at this point as, you know, Chinese people when it comes to their culture, but politically as, you know, uh, a society that does not uh, support the methods or the political system advocated by the Chinese Communist Party. Right, I think it's, it's a very important point that uh, in this great power competition, uh, the struggle that uh, Ukraine now uh, maintains against the overwhelming Russian forces and uh, actually a very good condition of the of the Taiwanese uh, defenses. Uh, this is a reminder that we should not ignore the smaller countries because they could be uh, undigestible for, for the bigger powers and especially if the international solidarity helps them to uh, and supports them in this uh, war or uh, conventional war or unconventional uh, struggles uh, against the uh, theoretically bigger powers. I think it's a kind of very hopeful message for, for, for those countries who have these big aggressive neighbors, uh, such as Russia or, or China. And the very last question, uh, you're an expert on, on the narratives, and uh, I would like to ask you about how, how the Chinese soft power uh, changed and, and kind of influenced the, the Western discourse. It seems it's very, it, it was a very long and very successful process. Can you tell us more about it? Deconstruct this, this narrative that we take for granted of, of China in, in the West? Uh, sure. 
I feel that uh, for a long time um, there uh, has been this uh, widespread assumption that China's soft power um, is quite weak, but weak in terms of uh, its kind of cultural impact. So there is no equivalent of um, South Korea's K-pop or K-dramas or um, manga and anime in the case of Japan. Mm, but instead, China's soft power, in my view, uh, is rather about uh, developing certain normative narratives about the nature of, for example, the Chinese statehood, the Chinese culture or the Chinese economy. Um, and all these narratives, they have somehow become naturalized and rationalized in the uh, mainstream media discourse uh, in, in Europe or in the US. Um, so we have this kind of uh, common sense knowledge, for example, that China is a country with 5,000 years of history, or um, that the Chinese state is extremely efficient when it comes to allocation of resources, or um, you know that the Chinese Communist Party is planning uh, in decades, not in years. Also, the narrative of the peaceful development of China and, and its alleged lack of involvement in any kind of wars or aggressive conflicts. Um, these are the examples of what I see is a form of soft power, because probably you've also encountered this kind of narrative in the mainstream um, debate about China. But unfortunately, um, these narratives are, are sort of myths that have been promoted by both Chinese media, by Chinese intellectuals, um, Chinese diplomats in the last couple of decades to create this kind of orientalized vision of China as this faraway other um, country very different from the West, yet very attractive, uh, but also friendly and not really presenting any real threats uh, to potential economic partners. Also, this, this narrative about China being interested only in economic uh, development and trade cooperation and kind of not politicizing these issues is also another example of China's soft power, which is not grounded in, uh, in reality on the ground. So uh, domestically, uh, for example, the whole narrative about efficiency can be, um, can be somehow problematized by the example of ghost towns, you know, this uh, huge cities that have been built um, all throughout China um, because of the infrastructure boom uh, in the post-2008 era um, and a lot of misallocation of resources, empty residential buildings, uh, you know, forms of infrastructure that has remained unused for many, many years. Then we also have um, the example of long-term planning. Um, but if you look, for example, at one of the most disastrous policies that uh, the CCP has introduced, the one child policy, uh, it's basically a contradiction of thoughtful long-term planning because coupled with a lot of uh, sexism and the traditional preference for male uh, children, um, one child policy has actually resulted in one of the most drastic gender imbalances uh, globally within only a few decades. And now China is facing a huge demographic crisis not only because the society is aging overall, but also because many, many men, millions of men, will be unable to find uh, spouses uh, because of this uh, gender imbalance. Also, the 5,000 years of history narrative, uh, you know, this is the official lifespan of Chinese history. But if you look at how this narrative was constructed over the years, um, this lifespan uh, has been extending 
kind of proportionally to what uh, Beijing wanted to achieve on the international uh, international uh, arena. So the, the bigger uh, China's ambitions were, uh, the longer uh, the history of China uh, would become. Um, you know, there's a lot of other examples that I could talk about, but I guess we don't really have time for that. Well, that's that's a really fascinating subject, and to be honest, the the success of of these narratives, regardless of the kind of material base for, for for it, is remarkable, and also shows us how sometimes this neglected neglected sphere of of public discourse or public policy should come into the uh, well foreground, the background of the of how we. Uh, see the power struggle and uh, basically the world really and uh, I, I think we can only wish that our narratives were uh, as successful uh, in China as the Chinese were successful in, in our part of the world and I'm sure we will discuss it uh, I hope that in uh, either during freedom games or another occasions uh, before we go because we, we came to the end of, of our conversation I would like to, Alicia, to ask you about uh, uh, either a book, article, or analysis uh, recommendation uh, for our listeners on the subject of what we discussed today. Um, so when it comes to the Sino-Russian uh, relationship, um, I would like to recommend a great report by, um, by the experts from Warsaw-based think tank, OSW, the, the Center for Eastern Studies. Uh, it's a report called The Beijing-Moscow Axis, The Foundations of an Asymmetric Alliance, and it was published really recently, I think it was in, in late uh, 2021, and it's a really comprehensive, but also not very uh, long, uh, it's quite accessible, analysis of how um, the relations between uh, Beijing and Moscow have been uh, developing over the last decade or so. And it's a great background reading for all those who uh, are not aware of the extent of closeness between these two countries and what the implications of this closeness might be for countries like Poland. And especially I recommend this, this report because all the authors who were involved in its creation um, have either um, Chinese language skills or Russian language skills, and they're very accustomed with, um, you know, the cultural and political intricacies uh, of, of uh, both of these countries. And also, if uh, I may, uh, still recommend one more reading uh, related uh, to, to the, the last topic that we've talked about, the, the whole narrative theme. Uh, there is a, an essay by Anya Sanz uh, from the University of Heidelberg, um, and it's called Unmaking China's Myths. And it's kind of an introduction to a series of essays on uh, basically this China myth that we often encounter in public debate. And it's a great, very uh, sharp analysis of how um, the perceptions of China are often framed through myths or, um, you know, they're not based on facts. Uh, and she's also analyzing where these myths come from and what assumptions we are making uh, when we employ them. So that's a highly uh, recommended read as well. Both recommendations seem to be a terrific, terrific read and uh, we'll try also to get the links so everyone could follow uh, on them and, and read them if they, if they want to deepen their knowledge of, uh, of their China, Russia and Chinese narratives. Uh, 
Alicia, it was such a pleasure to, to be talking to you. Thank you so much. Alicia Bahuska was our guest today. Uh, thank you for your time and insightful comments and, and analysis. Thank you very much, Leszek. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners. This was a Liberal Europe podcast. I hope you enjoyed. And uh, my name is Leszek Jaszewski. I will be with you in uh, two weeks. But next week, please tune in for Ricardo Silvestre and his guests. It's all for now. Thank you so much. Goodbye.